Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Jenny Blake. Jenny is an award-winning author, podcaster, and keynote speaker who loves helping people move from friction to flow through smarter systems powered by what she calls delightfully tiny teams. Today, we're going to be focused on her third book, which is Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. And this book is all about freeing your mind, time, and team for doing your best work. Jenny is celebrating over a decade of running her own business after five years at Google and She now licenses her content to clients like Google and Chanel. She hosts two podcasts that have over 1 million downloads combined. Free Time is her podcast for heart-based business owners. And then Pivot with Jenny Blake is her other podcast, and that helps people navigate change. While large swaths of her newest book, Free Time, are most applicable to entrepreneurs, tons of her insights can be applied across, I think, most jobs and life in general. So with that, let's get into the show. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Whitney. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. There is so much to get into with your book, Free Time. Let's just dive right in. So in part one of your book, you reflected on this pride you used to feel in an earlier phase of your career when a manager jokingly asked, hey, do you have five Jennies hidden in your office? Because (laughs) you were so productive. And I feel this. I've been in that type of role at different phases of my career. And I'm just wondering, this is a total shift from where you are now. And in terms of what came across for me, in terms of your beliefs, what has changed in terms of your perspective on productivity? I would say at that time, it did feel good to be a Jill of all trades and be willing. I think when you're early in your career, it is helpful to kind of say yes to as many things as you can jump in, be helpful. Don't turn anything down. The one funny thing is that at that time I was the office manager, webmaster and marketing assistant. So I would be doing everything from managing Google ads to reordering toilet paper before someone could think to ask. And now one of the strategies I've been sharing 15 plus years later when I've been talking about free time is put your toilet paper on subscription so you never have to think about it again. And it's like that little thing of just the pride. You mentioned the pride. I used to feel so proud when someone would knock on my door at the startup. I was 19 at the time. And they would say, oh, just so you know, we're running low on toilet paper. And I would say it's on its way. And that was those pre-Amazon, you know, Amazon wasn't this like one click order. And it's just so funny that those small things even persist today. And I, I think sometimes it's the small stuff. That's the most annoying aspect of adulting. It is all the errands. It is going grocery shopping sometimes, although now Whole Foods is my happy place, but you get the idea. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have shifted and I've also learned to love trying to systematize all that small stuff so that I can wear fewer hats now in my career. I love all your systemization. I wanted you to just come in and flood my business and life with all your systems. Goodness. So 
we can't do that today, but we're going to definitely gain all of your juicy insights. So speaking of doing things you love in free time, you write about entrepreneurship in a way that really resonates with me. And you talk about it being more built on ease and joy and intention and serving the greater good. I've found in my experience and tell me if this is true for you. Sometimes the hardest part of leaning into that is letting go to ingrained patterns that we had and ways of working that don't serve us. Yeah. Compared to your years at Google, you know, what was your biggest unlearning? Well, I realized that only later, many years after leaving Google, because when I worked at Google, I had a full calendar. It was just all day, every day, back to back. Back to back was typical and typing on the laptop while it rests in the crook of your elbow, while in the elevator. It was like, there was just no moment detached from the devices because it was such a fast paced environment. But then when I was self-employed in the early days, I was still having a, a sense of time scarcity and feeling scattered and feeling crunched and feeling overwhelmed. Like I would look out at the day or the week or ahead to the whole month and just feel that where was my time going? And that's only when reflecting when writing the book, I realized that we all have an underlying time blueprint, just like we have a money blueprint of the stories we grew up with and the habits. I mean, I had been going to, I was kind of a latchkey kid. And part of my childcare was making sure I went to five activities back to back after school every day. So of course, I'm going to keep recreating that pattern that time blueprint over and over, whether I work for myself or I work for someone else. And it was very hard. It took years to slowly shift to leaving space and creating big buffer windows. I just recorded an episode for the free time podcast on time buffer and all the ways that I build it in. But in order to build in buffer, you also have to give yourself permission. Oh, it's okay that I need an hour to decompress after a phone call or a meeting instead of just cramming the next one right after it. And I think sometimes we beat ourselves up for needing what we need or needing more buffer or wanting more space in between things or taking Monday off. And I know some of you may, like some of you listening might work a full-time job and you may have a little bit less flexibility, but I found that I was often overstepping my own time boundaries of what I would need for space and ease before anyone else did, because I was the one saying yes, I was the one suggesting days and times. And now I've gotten really strict about the container of when meetings and calls happen. And the, the truth is nobody really cares. If, if someone writes to me and they ask for a date and I only have two weeks out, it's okay. There's al- It's almost never urgent. And it just allows me to maintain a different relationship to time. It doesn't always work. And sometimes I make exceptions, but overall, I feel like We could all design our calendars with a little more buffer and a little more space so that we don't feel so crunched, but our culture would have us be crunched. (laughs) You know what I mean? It it can seem totally normal and like there's something wrong with you if you don't want that. But I say you hereby have permission to loosen the lid on all that a little bit. I want to reflect back a few things because that was jam-packed with wisdom. And I'm so with you on the buffers, the peace buffers, even. First of all, it it really made me reflect because we do, especially the parents in my community, I think compared to when I was younger, there is this pressure, especially as your kids get a little older to almost have this competitiveness and like filling up their calendars and you get into this lack mentality. And it was obviously, we all know that what happens in childhood can, you know, create patterns for future, but I hadn't thought about it 
the way that you said that it is creating them to feel like it's normal to constantly jam pack their calendar and that they will get used to that in adulthood. And you're saying that's what you experienced, right? Yeah. And be, be rushing. It's hard because all those sports and dance classes did great things for me and music classes. Like, so I really admire and give a lot of kudos to the parents who are helping their kids have all these extracurriculars and often driving them, shuttling them around, going on the weekends. I think it's just a matter of, are we cramming in things? You know, or are we like picking the things that whether it's a child or an adult that they love the most and just being a little bit mindful of that? Because I think to the point where you're always rushing from one place to the next or always late, that's where it creates for me, at least, and maybe maybe I'm more sensitive than others, but created a sense of like adrenaline and just stress as sort of default hormones in my system that, yes, just took a a long time to unwind as an adult. I know that this is actually a little bit in terms of valuing free time, obviously, the name of your book, but also you talk about high net freedom now being more important to you than high net worth. Tell me what that means, because I feel like it's really tangential to what we're talking about. Yeah, well, you know, we all know the term high net worth, and I feel like money is such an object of desire in our society. And understandably so, because we need a certain baseline to survive, period, and let alone thrive. And it's getting trickier and trickier the way things are structured on some level. When I wrote Pivot, my last book that came out in 2016, I said that book was for people who are high net growth. Money is important, but it's not everything. And if you're high net growth, you will often get more restless more quickly, even at a perfect on paper job. And you don't want to just know what am I earning, but what am I learning? Am I growing? Am I making an impact? So now with free time, my third book, we're also saying high net freedom. We're actually saying, I asked this question, would you take on a highly bureaucratic nightmare client for 80 to hundred hour work weeks for an entire year? You can't back out if you would get a million dollars at the end of that year. And it's just fascinating to hear people's responses because some would say, yes, give me the money. I'll do it. And then others would you know, I have a friend, Wade, who I feature in the book who had a cancer scare in her early twenties and lost her mom to cancer. And she said, no, there's no amount of money that would have me sacrifice my health and my life and my relationships. And so I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer to this one, but just that we are allowed to question whether money at the pursuit of all else is working for us. And if you're high net freedom, you may sometimes take a pay cut or restructure if you run your own business or you have a side hustle or you want to work part-time and not full-time. I honestly think we should all be working part-time because I think whatever is full-time, 40 hours is too much. It's often too much to be able to take care of yourself and your family at the same time. So if you're high net freedom, we do want to earn abundantly financially as well, but not at the expense of our health, our autonomy, our relationships. So it's just a slightly different calculus. And for me, the last thing I'll say on this is that, yes, I love strategizing how to, how to earn more and increase my earning potential and grow scalable streams of revenue and all that good stuff. But I also want to be doing it in a way that's easeful and joyful because the other thing is I don't want to just be sprinting on a miserable hamster wheel. And then one day I wake up 20 years from now and, oh, I somehow made it. The number on the bank account statement is now what I always wanted but I've been miserable for 20 years. That just doesn't make sense to me. 
that doesn't make sense to me either. I'm so with you and all that. And one of the sections of your book, something that stuck with me in, in terms of what you're talking about, about really just feeling excited and nourished most of the time by what we're doing is your idea of friction versus flow. And you wrote friction, you kind of described as disharmony, dread, guilt, nothing motivating us. And I think we've all probably had some job, whether it's a paid or not paid job where we can just be like, ooh, sticky, doesn't feel good in the mind, body or soul. And then you contrast that with flow which is more focusing on what's vital and effortless. So especially in an entrepreneurial role, but I'd argue for life in general, what are your favorite practices for maybe identifying and releasing our our biggest places of friction? Well, just noticing it can be a really good start. And you described it, you read from the book, but just like put the summary out there so well that friction is dread, despair, procrastination, drained, heavy, constricted. So we all know friction. I don't have to tell anybody listening what friction feels like. Even what do you fight with your spouse about? That's friction, those recurring arguments. And then flow is time's flying. You don't even realize time's passing. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi describes that as a state of near ecstatic bliss. So step one is be an observer and even write down, because sometimes you might be listening to something like this. And I say, what are your friction areas? And a few big ones come to mind. But if you be an observer over the next few weeks, you might write down 10 more. And once you know what they are, at least you have the awareness. So I'll give you an example. My husband does not mind a chaotic home. He just doesn't see it, doesn't care. Every inch could be covered in disarray and he doesn't care. Meanwhile, my mood, my spirit goes on such a nosedive. Like the more chaos on the surfaces of our home, I start to like feel suffocated And of course, that's like in my nature, I love creating order from chaos, but not when it comes to keeping our home neat and the how it devolves because I'm working like I'm the breadwinner for our family. And yet he doesn't care. So it's not like we have a shared vision. Okay. Bottom line is instead of us constantly bickering and fighting and me saying the house is too messy and why can't we tidy and he gets triggered because growing up, his mom was always cleaning and okay, this is a tug of war. And in the book I share, my friend Christine calls it a sacred third solution. The sacred third solution was that I said, I'm going to hire a cleaning service weekly recurring. I would have never dreamt of paying for a weekly cleaning service, but I was reaching a point of the arguments or the friction around it was so recurring and I was so unhappy that I finally didn't worry anymore what it's going to cost. I'm just going to say, how can I earn extra to accommodate having a weekly cleaning service set to recur because I had also had a lot of friction texting one-off providers. Can you come Friday? No. Oh, can you come Friday? Oh, and then you confirm. And then it's like, Oh, that morning. Oh, I'm sick. I can't come. Okay. A service send someone to replace like the service. I go through one main channel and they help arrange it all. And that was a big breakthrough. And that's just one example of I want to focus my energy on solving my big business problems. I don't want to be stressed that the house is messy or fighting about it or even doing all the work. I don't have the time in the day to clean all the surfaces. So that I I like sharing home examples sometimes because there's a lot of stuff that I don't think anybody really loves doing. 
That said, if you're someone that you love throwing on a podcast and tidying soothes your soul, sometimes it does for me every now and then I get that too. So it's just to each their own of what's joyful for you. And then how can you solve for the rest? And when it does involve a little bit of money and delegating to someone or something or a service, we even get ready-made meals delivered through something called territory that solved a problem. We stopped having friction around being hungry and there's nothing to eat, nothing in the fridge, nothing that assembles an actual dinner. You know, sometimes the whole fridge and pantry is all snacks. You're like, well, where's dinner? Okay. So we get made for you meals. Are they Michelin star? No, but they solve the problem enough that we can expend our creative cooking energy fewer times a week, but more joyfully. So, and that's a long tirade on that. (laughs) No, I I have so many thoughts on that. First of all, I think, especially for women and a lot of women who are trying to start their own business, or maybe it's not even their business, but maybe they just feel very inspired and aligned doing community work or volunteering. And they're kind of put out by housework. I think just realizing or giving that permission that I'd rather free up my mental energy to make impact where I'm passionate. And for me as a business owner, if I'm considering outsourcing something, I'm like, how much time would that take me? I'd rather use my creative prowess to earn that versus my time doing some of the household things I don't like to do. I think it's very individual, but I think it's just a permission slip for for women, especially who struggle with that sometimes. So thank you for being honest. Oh, sure. Yeah. I I love the way you put it. And it's funny because I used to get at one point we were getting groceries delivered, but then I flipped because lately I like putting on a podcast going first thing in the morning when no one's at the grocery store. And that's kind of peaceful time for me now. It's like puttering around. So it's even, you might take some things back. There might be chores that you actually enjoy. So, so this isn't passing judgment on any single element of life or work or partnership or householding or adulting, none of it, but it's just on your compass. Exactly. As you said, Whitney, So like in the morning, I I enjoy going to the air conditioned Whole Foods, especially in the summer. (laughs) But if I could easily make the argument that why don't I just get the groceries delivered and I'll spend that hour doing one of the many things on the list for my business that could earn 10x, you know, the time it would have spent to go. Yes. So one of the things I'm sure has come up with people who are reading your book that I want to talk about is like, I feel like a lot of people are like, well, every job has its things you don't like. And that's always something people say even to me. And I liked your idea. And I think of the 70, 20, 10 rule, because I felt like it was this balance of hopeful and realistic, right? So can you tell us what that is? Yeah. So try to aim for 70% work that energizes you. 20% Let's say the 20 and the 10 can toggle, but there's going to be some percentage, 5, 10, 20% that you just keep, you just deal with it. And then how can you delegate the rest? Even if you're delegating to software, or I mentioned getting paper towels and toilet paper set on recurring delivery. So once you set that up one time, you never have to think about it again. That's what I mean by delegating to software. So you can also delegate to these, a big conglomerate that has uh, one day delivery. <laughs> so It doesn't have to mean that you're just like system loving tech savvy person in order to delegate. And the reason I mentioned delegating to software is sometimes people get intimidated and they say, I am at the entry level. I have no one to delegate to there or there's no budget to hire all these people. 
So just being creative about what that looks like. And I will say that at times when I was really struggling to even pay the rent at that time, I remember I was paying two fifty a month for something small, 10 hours a month, but those 10 hours, what she did calling companies, getting charges removed, adjusting bills, uh, making appointments, doctor's appointments, the things that this person helped me do in those short 10 hours, I was willing to cut every other expense I needed to like in New York city, that's two dinners out that you don't go to or three. And I was willing and grateful to cut out so many other things just so I could keep the VA that I had. So you might also be surprised at what's possible. A lot of people I know are experimenting with hiring a personal assistant or a, a even a young kid from the block who helps like mail things at the post office. I mean, there are just so many ways to get creative with outsourcing some of the work with the 10 or 20% that you, that you just, not only is it neutral, like it drains you and it's piling up and you're feeling guilty and stuff's falling through the cracks or in my case, you're making mortifying business mistakes that those are the red flags that go like, you got to get this figured out. It's it's not working to even try to keep all this on your plate. I'm so with you. I love energy conversations and I feel like I can compare this to that feeling you get when you do a, like a major inspired purge of your house. And it's just like, oh my God, there's all this spaciousness, you know? I feel like when I've been able to let go of things that were were draining me and sometimes another way of, you know, maybe you don't have money to outsource. One of my favorite hacks is to just stop. What are you doing that you can just like completely, you know, sometimes it's like what it it might be even time expenditures, you know, or thinking like this is a funny example going back to meals. I stopped worrying what we were going to have for dinner because I realized that my husband always got hungry first. (laughs) (laughs) And so every day before me, I was like this funny situation and we get along really well. Like we don't argue a lot and I wasn't trying to be manipulative in any way, but I just realized he gets hungry first. Therefore dinner is his to solve. And so I kind of just dropped it. Like I just stopped worrying about it and I stopped (laughs) rushing out of my office to go start cooking something. Cause I was like, he's inevitably going to get hungry first and he'll figure it out. Cause he's hungrier than me in general. And he's the one that figured out territory meals and meal delivery and is managing that. It was like, Oh, it's true. And I love Tiffany Dufu's book, drop the ball because you'd be surprised if you drop some of these balls, someone else might pick them up and be none the wiser. Right. And maybe it doesn't, sometimes you don't even have to have a major conversation. Right. And from, for our, you know, women who are in the entrepreneurial role, I'll give an example from, from my personal life. I happen to really actually like Instagram. I, it, it's very like easy and fast and fun. And I have very intentional limits to how much time I spend on there and it all works, but I don't show up on any other channels right now. And I think I I have lots of entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs in my circles that are, I don't mean to sound negative, but like freaking out about showing up and being everywhere. And sometimes it's just like, you know, instead of trying to outsource social media or something like that, it's just like, what can you just let fall to let yourself have this breathing room and this focus? Yeah, that's such a good example. And there's another permission slip. Like you hereby have permission not to be in all the places. 
it's okay. And you, Whitney, you have, you love Instagram. And so that's so, so positive. And you're doing this podcast. So every week you're putting out content and interviewing people and connecting and networking, even a podcast is a great way to make friends. And so I would encourage people to do the same is really think about what channels, if you are a business owner, what channels give you energy and are so rewarding, regardless of the numbers of the metrics, and then exactly like which ones can you drop? And are the consequences of that really what you think? When I stopped posting on Twitter and I never really got into Instagram, I realized I'm not getting clients from social media and I'm not convinced that anyone sees if I post on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram, I'm not convinced that anyone actually sees it. Like there's so much going on. We have so much information flying at us that for me, I call it ongoing public original thinking. I think if you want to have a platform, it is important to on a regular basis, think out loud and hit publish, even when it's not perfect, it will never be perfect. It's about the long arc of creativity. And I've been building a platform now for 17 years online. There are many moments where I've taken six months off unplanned, unannounced. I thought it was just going to be a week or even this summer. As an example, I kind of like had a really busy week and I forgot to send my weekly Friday time well spent newsletter. And at first I was kind of beating myself up. And then I go, is anyone going to miss that? Is anyone even going to notice? And I was not convinced that the answer was yes. Like, it's August. People are on vacation. No one wants to be at their computer on their phone. I'm like, I doubt anyone is going to notice that this did not go out this Friday. I'll keep with it. And I admire people who are consistent without ever missing a beat for 10 plus years. That's amazing. It just happens to not be me. Yes. And you know, you said in the book, I'm paraphrasing, but you said there's, I think there's no scenario where a burned out business owner is better than one who shows up energized. And honestly, I think that that goes way beyond business. I think that's for life. You know, if we're burned out, who do we serve? And people can feel the energy. So I have to have you share. I loved the cake making example. I ha- can you tell that story? Because I sure. felt like it illustrated this energy <laughs> yeah. concept that I know and so deeply believe and in such a perfect way. (laughs) Yes, this I'll, I'll save the punchline, the moral of this story for the end. So there's two cake baking scenarios in the book. Scenario one, you're going over to a friend's house and they are sweating and their shirt is stained and they're like, uh, I've been baking all afternoon and I've been working so hard and baking a cake is so hard. And this is just, oh, it's grueling. How are you? And you're like, oh, I'm good. Well, it's great to be here. It's great to see you. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Great to see you. And they're tired and they, they pull their cake out of the oven and they cut a slice and like, here, I, I made this for you. This is for you. Okay. So that's scenario one. Scenario two, you go to your friend's house. And there's music playing. I say in the book, like Christmas music in July and they're whistling and they're chatting you up. They pour you a drink. They're just having conversation. They're having so much fun. The house smells amazing. You're like, what is that? Your mouth starts watering. You just smell this cake baking. They don't even have a timer set. They're just going off intuition. All of a sudden, the smell is just so, and they they pull the cake out, and it's perfectly browned, and they're so proud, and they're like, here, you're going to love this. I made this for you. 
And by the way, this cake has popcorn in it and blueberries and (laughs) bananas and (laughs) coconut oil. You're going to love it. And by the way, the signature drink that goes with this is almond milk. And they just put so much pride into the display and, and just so much joy. Like it just appears they're having a blast. And so you taste the cake. And now the question is, which piece of cake tastes better? The one that your friend is so miserable and burnt out over or the one that this person baked with like just complete abandon and joy. And I would argue that we have a much better experience tasting the second cake and that the person baking it had so much more fun too. So in the book, I say how we bake is as important as what we make. And the parallel is that, let's say among authors, sometimes authors will go on and on how hard it is to write a book how miserable it is, what a terrible thing it is. And then the book launches, they're burnt out, they're exhausted. Now I've been burned out so many times. I know sometimes it just, it's unavoidable. Nobody tries to burn out. But that energy of like, this is so hard and I'm exhausted and here I made it for you. It's not really serving the work. It's not serving anyone, not the owner, not the cake, not the friend eating it. Whereas if we can bake with a little more ease and joy, and have fun in the process, everybody wins. So it's trying to step back a little bit. And if things are too hard and you're grinding and miserable, like nobody wants to eat a piece of cake that a martyr made for them. You know, that is like, it's like, don't do me any favors, please. I'd rather you didn't make this cake at all. And we could have just hung out as friends. I would never want to make you miserable just so you could make this for me. So that's the cake baking story. And and I joke in the book, I'm not so much as miserable as case study one, cake baking scenario one, but my husband is definitely scenario two, like just the most creative, joyful cooks like he paints, blissed out chef. And he's not a chef. He's a painter. He's an artist. But uh, that's where that story originates. Well, I think that there's a powerful through line in how that shows up, whether in business, you know, if you're working on a project and you're just complaining, enforcing it, the energy isn't there. And I think, you know, either we need to step back to come back with a fresh, you know, lens, or we need to, we need to to change. So, and I think that is a sign of friction that necessitates a pause. So for example, with podcasting, I've had my first podcast for seven years now. And I remember there was a string of interviews where I was bored on the interview and I ended up not running them or the guest wasn't very joyful. And I was accepting a lot of guest pitches. Like people were just pitching people that i had never weren't on my radar. And I was saying, yes. And I realized I had this pattern where I became, I hit a plateau and I did stop the show for six months because I was not enjoying it. I didn't even consciously, again, I I mentioned earlier, I didn't even think I'm going to take a six month sabbatical. I just could not muster any excitement for the project. And and that's when I do think it is a signal that that kind of misery is a form of friction where we got to pause and say, what is this trying to teach me? How can I realign this? My friend Leanne asks, and I love this question, how can I fall in love with this again? So even at whether it's the example of cooking dinner for your family, whether it's cleaning the house, whether it's sending your weekly newsletter, whether it's serving your clients, it's how can I fall in love with this again? 
So if it's, if you're burned out on client work, maybe you have the wrong clients and it's like, how can I fall in love with my clients again? Okay. Well, I got to shift the hours. I'm going to start saying no to afternoon calls. I'm going to raise my rates. I'm going to change from project-based billing to monthly retainer. There's just so many possibilities. Once you give yourself permission to pause and say, the joy is gone. How do I bring the joy back? That joy isn't this frivolous add-on at the end. It's actually imperative because we are in a noisy world. There's 5 million podcasts now. Can you imagine Whitney, if you were like miserable during this conversation, <laughs> who would want to listen? And Nassim Taleb even gave that advice. He said to writers, he said, if you are bored while you're writing, your reader will surely be bored and lose interest. <laughs> so stop writing that section. Yes. As creatives, we got to create with that joy. Otherwise it, it's not going to work. I just, I believe it's not going to connect. People can sense it even if not overtly. Yes. And one of my personal knowings that has been such an amazing way that I look at life as I've gotten older is just knowing that how it feels to you always trumps what it looks like externally. And so I have to go back. I have a few funny things about the DNA of projects and more than baking, but I'll give an example. So my last name's Baker. That's right. <laughs> I, it's so I, perfect we're going down this way. <laughs> I, for some reason, I just, baking is not my thing. And for a long time, I like joke, you know, it's my married name, but like, I didn't grow up baking. My mom didn't bake. Even every year, I love the tradition. I love the hominess. I love to cook and I love to gather but I'm just a disaster. Like every year, even our holiday cookies that we make end up swelling so much that we have to like re-cookie cutter them out. And it's just like, we laugh every year. I try something different. I'm like, I'm, I'm a cursed baker. But one thing my mom did teach me is, you know, instead of like putting all the pressure, I, I really love that question. How can I fall in love with this again? So whether it's work or home this week, I do love to cook. And sometimes I, I think more than cooking, I love that sense of like, okay, this is a special time and I want my family to feel nourished. It's important to me. And I have this vision of, of making this fresh soup, like with veggies and all this stuff. And then I was just like, you know what, this is a super full time for me. Like something has to give. So instead I went to the grocery store, got some pre-made amazing soup, dumped it in the crock pot, put it on low. So it was smelling good. And I lit a candle and put music on with dinner instead. And I was I so just like, you know, bread in the salad and we're done. And it saved me a 90 minutes out of my day, probably, you know, the chopping, it's just, you know, the, the stirring, yes. whatever, maybe not that long, but I was just like, okay, I'm showing up in a way that this was what I could do right now with love and I not love like, that. you know, and still create such a nice ambiance, <laughs> you know, like, I love that you figured out those meaningful touches that you could do that the whole feeling, even, even hearing you say, I just had an aha moment of putting it in this crock pot on slow cook so that the house smells good. How cool. Just everyone still gets that sensory experience that there's yummy food and the love is in the whole experience you created. It's not just that you chopped the vegetables that day. Yes. And the kitchen was clean. So that's a, yes, you know, another miracle. <laughs> and that's a good example of delegation. You delegated the vegetable chopping on that day 
to this pre-made bundle. I've done that too, where I don't usually like to buy all the pre-chopped veggies in the plastic container, but then when you do every now and then it's like, all right, well, I just saved 30 minutes of sitting, standing in the kitchen shopping stuff. I yes. love that example. Yes. I know we're getting close on time here, but I found your discussion in the book of nonlinear breakthroughs just super hopeful. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I have to say, I love you, what you've curated. You've picked all my favorite, all my favorite sections too. And I know, you know, I, I talk about heart-based business in the book that just some of us are interested in things that go beyond just like the hardcore business metrics of, of a lot of the business press and, and business books. And so it's really fun hearing what you picked out because they're my favorite topics and they're my favorite ways to run my business. So one of those is nonlinear breakthroughs, which is that anytime we're telling ourselves a story that this is going to be a long, hard slog, it's impossible. It's too competitive. It's too noisy, or it will take me a long time. I just question that. What if it doesn't? And you can invite a nonlinear breakthrough. So you might say, I'm completely stuck on this. I'm here by asking for a nonlinear breakthrough, like just show me one next step, or please show me another way to tackle this problem. A lot of this I learned from Tosha Silver. She has a delightful book called Outrageous Openness. I think you would love it, Whitney, if you have not already read it. Her Writing book it down. so <laughs> whimsical. You will not regret it. Someone told me about it. They were like, do not pass go. Don't question it. Just one click order this right now. I did. I haven't looked back. It changed my life. So nonlinear breakthrough is, is, is you know, Tosha Silver talks about this kind of surrender and an offering like outrageous openness is also the gift of offerings. So you offer a problem and you ask to be shown. And some people say, well, I'm not very intuitive. Well then ask to be shown in a really obvious way. That's what she always says that so you can ask for as many signs as you want, but by asking for a nonlinear breakthrough, we're open to the possibility that anything can happen at any time. And Something might feel impossible or might feel hard, long, hard, but also something can shift in any moment. And later in the book, I talk about, are you ready for your big break or would your business break? But some criticize magical thinking like, oh no, you have to work hard to succeed and you do have to put in the reps and you got to grind for at least 10 years to an overnight success. And I'm willing to work diligently. I don't even want to say hard. I'm willing to work strategically. And I also just always want to be ready and open to things that come out of nowhere. And I find that when I live my life on serendipity, that's like my number one business strategy. So many interesting things happen. I meet the most interesting people. Just the other day, I got to tell this story. I have not told it on a podcast. I was at the post office for four hours mailing free time books. And I was kind of berating myself because I was thinking I should have hired someone. I should have gotten a task <laughs> rabbit. What am I doing? I'll never do this again. It just took all day. I waited in this long line twice. It's crowded in New York compared to other cities sometimes, the post office. And yet I wanted to personalize all the books that were going out. And I like overdid it on all the, the personalized touches. So I kind of went overboard. <laughs> but I had one book left and I had a rolling suitcase I had to bring just to carry them all. <laughs> I had one book left. I'm like, what I, what I do here? I overestimate. This is weird. I have one book left. And as I'm leaving the post office, telling myself, I'm never going to do this again. In walks Kristen McGee, the yoga instructor on the Peloton app, who I take her class every single day for the last two years through the entire pandemic, through the entire time I was writing free time. 
I take her yoga class almost every single day. And more than seeing any celebrity, like, I don't know, name some A-list star. It was seeing Kristen, like this person who's been so instrumental in my life. Like as if I heard angels singing, like she walked in, I totally embarrassed myself. I'm like, "Are, are you Kristen by any chance? She said, yes. And I said, this is really weird, but I have one book left. Would you like this copy of free time? And I was able to thank her and personalize the book for her and leave that with her on my way out. And that is serendipity. I was part of the reason I live in New York City. So I'm open to that kind of thing. But, you know, that's just an example of like a fun moment, a serendipitous moment. And you never know where that will lead. And she said, oh, I'll share this on my Instagram stories. I don't even care about that. But it was just so cool to meet her. And like now, okay, a copy of free time lives in her house, someone I really respect. And I would have never made that connection otherwise. That's so exciting. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, and I also feel like I like your thinking on because sometimes we just get really attached to things needing to be done a certain way because this is how we've done them or like needing to go from step A to B to C to D. And I'm a big fan of sometimes they're just being like, boom, (laughs) now we just did it a totally different way. And wow, it was so much more efficient. Like your soup story. That was a nonlinear breakthrough. (laughs) All right. I have one this week. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Okay. I just want you to, because I feel like there is this like very, there's tension in the water right now, I feel between this like heart led and openness to, to running our businesses and lives in, like you said, a little bit more intuitive serendipitous ways versus this more controlling grit is the only way or more grind. I know you talk a little bit about lowercase hard work and uppercase hard work. And I think everyone would like to hear your perspective there. I think about this all the time. Again, I feel that you're reading my mind because I get that hard work. I mean, I guess it also depends. How are we defining them? In the book, I say capital H hard work is a little bit of that cake baking scenario one vibe where you're just miserable and still putting in the capital H hard work. And then lowercase hard work is it's aligned. The first stage of the free time framework. So it's three parts to move from friction to flow, align, design, assign. And the first question, should you be doing this at all? So for me, lowercase hard work is that it's aligned and you are showing up day after day. You're showing up on good days and bad. You're pushing through perfectionism and imposter syndrome and discouragement. And I think those are some of the gritty qualities is that you don't let yourself completely be derailed by any one thing or self-talk. It's like, I have not been, I'm not that confident of a person in a lot of ways, but I just keep going. (laughs) So I never expect that my fear goes away, that I feel like less of imposter, that I think, you know, my brother joked, he's like, I got to just come around with you. And like, when you put these little humble phrases out there, I need to tell people what you, that really means, like what you really (laughs) do in your life. And it's just like, I'm not the person to sing from the rooftop of how amazing I am and feel this like unshakable confidence that I can achieve anything. I'm just willing to show up in spite of the fear and awkwardness. Like the Krista Mickey, I was willing to talk to her. I was so awkward. I completely embarrassed myself, but I at least was willing to do it. And I was willing to feel how embarrassed I felt afterward because I would rather that I got to say thank you to her than not. 
And that's how I try to perceive kind of lowercase hard work. And I try to keep showing up. I think that's that's where I think it comes in. But some would make the case that doing uppercase hard work like Tough Mudder or CrossFit every day, like when you push yourself so far outside your comfort zone, that that's really rewarding too. So I feel like there can be many schools of thought on this and it might have to be of what your personality type is. I always did better when coaches or teachers growing up would tell me what I was doing well. That always motivated me to like do even more of that versus the ones that would criticize me. That was very deflating for me. But I know people who you criticize them and they're now motivated the rest of their life. They're like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I've got this. And they're like, that becomes completely their fuel. I think we're going to have to have a second podcast episode know, about I this. Whole know your take like, on this. No, I well, what's your so many take on thoughts. hard work? Where do you fall? Not to you know, go too far into it. I, I definitely, I grew up in the Midwest and my dad is in concrete and entrepreneurism. And I got a worker's permit when I was 12 and I, you know, I washed dishes and it definitely was work ethic. And so that's where yes. I really struggled. And I, I have a super strong work ethic but similar to your story that you shared about how, you know, the activities that were so wonderful, but then could have a underbelly of, of kind of not serving you in ways and as, a, as adults, I'm forever grateful that I had that work ethic. And I learned I've had so many jobs in my life. And I, I actually like love working and people and all the different experiences. But when I got into an environment working for like global creative agency, I didn't, hadn't encountered a work environment where there was never not work or never, it was never done. And so if you have like a super strong work ethic, and especially if you're a woman and you're childbearing age, you know, and I, I went overboard. It was just like, I felt it like really tipped into the negative space for me at that point. It became a negative because I just kept taking on more and more, not to my own well-being. And so especially when you work in a company, it's so easy to do that. The only punishment for working hard is you get more work. It's like a punishment for success kind of. Yeah. Right. So it's tricky. I'm still navigating it. I think one of my biggest learnings there in terms of the like capital H hard work though, is that to really just like stay in my own lane. If there's something that feels like super efforting to me all the time, I really try to let it just not just see how I can get it out of my life. Yeah. I know it's the other thing you may have picked up on it in the book. I say, I kind of disagree with how you do one thing is how you do everything because I get what they're saying. Like, oh, if you're sloppy on your, in your warrior one on your yoga mat, you're probably sloppy doing something else (laughs) or you're like getting distracted. But on the other hand, there are certain things that we do that we don't enjoy and we're miserable, like cake baker one. And that's like, unnecessarily hard work. But if you're working hard on your dreams and something that you love and it's aligned and you feel purposeful and regardless of what the numbers or external markers of success will show, I I can't tell you how many rejections I've gotten this year around free time, whether the book or the podcast, things I've applied for. It's weird. It's like I've been rejected (laughs) more times this year than ever. But but I, I love this topic and this work and I'm proud of it. And it's like, So that's the kind of keep going. Like you said, I'm just kind of echoing what you said, which is, I don't think 
it's worth working so hard on everything if it's not aligned and it doesn't serve some bigger purpose. Boom. I think that's the perfect place to end on. I always end my podcast by wrapping with one final question, and that's what's one question you wish women would ask themselves more? What do I really want? I think I would go with that. Someone told me that's a, it's a really powerful coaching question that when someone is stuck and you just say, what do you really want? So I emphasize two different words there, but what do you really want? And um, one year I always pick a word of the year, a theme of the year. One year I did heart's desire and my goal, cause I'm a lifelong people pleaser and I'm often, it's like, what do you want for dinner? Whatever you want. What do you want for dinner? And it's like, don't even check in with myself. I don't even give myself a minute to know what I want. It's just so focused on everyone else around me. And so the year that my theme was heart's desire was a goal to just tap into what's my heart's desire in this moment. And so step one, what do you really want? Or what do I want as a question to ask yourself? And then let that be enough for now. Later, you can work on honoring it more frequently, but to at least ask. Mm, I love that. I, I do a word of the year too, and I haven't heard of heart's desire, but it, it's definitely bubbling in my brain for, for 2023. Mm. What a beautiful place to end. It's been such a joy to connect with you. Likewise. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Whitney. It's been a real treat. Thank you for sharing all that you did and these great questions and big thanks to everybody who's here listening. Yeah. And real quick, I know people are going to want to check out the book and I know you're not online. So tell us where we can find you. (laughs) You're online. You're not on social. (laughs) Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can search for free time with Jenny Blake or pivot with Jenny Blake. Those are my two shows. And I would love for you to check out the book. If it resonates, you can go to itsfreetime.com slash book. And if you go to slash toolkit, there's a free toolkit with a bunch of resources related to what we've been talking about. All the resources, you guys check Yay. that out. We'll make sure to capture it in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you awesome. so much. Thank you, Whitney. Happy baking, everybody. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at WhitneyWoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.